My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to Season 4 of the 21st Century Creative. If you're a returning listener, then it's welcome back. It's great to be here again after a break of a few months. And I'm really looking forward to sharing the season with you over, well, what is the summer for me here in Bristol in the UK? Whatever season it is for you, I hope the podcast is a renewed source of inspiration for you in your endeavours. If you're new to the show, then, as the name suggests, this podcast is for you as a creative professional in the 21st century. Whether you're working in the arts, the creative and media industries, or you're a creative entrepreneur. My name is Mark McGuinness. I'm a poet and a coach for creative professionals. And I've created the show to share what I've learned on my own creative path and also from spending over two decades working one-on-one with creatives of all kinds, helping them to achieve their artistic and professional ambitions. Every episode of the show starts with me sharing an insight, or a story, or a piece of practical advice to help you on your creative path. And then the second part of the show is an in-depth interview with an outstanding creator who shares some of the ups and downs of their road to success and what they've learned along the way. To give you an idea of what's in store this season, my guests include a screenwriter on one of the most successful television dramas of all time, a best-selling author of illustrated children's books, a real-life adventurer who has circumnavigated the globe by bicycle, a singer whose latest album debuted at number two in the iTunes jazz charts, and an extraordinary coach who has had a transformative impact on my own career. I want this show to be as helpful as possible to you in your own work. So, Whenever I interview a guest, I'm always listening out for what you and I can learn from their example and asking questions that will prompt them to share some of their hard-won wisdom. And at the end of every interview, I ask my guest to set you a creative challenge based on their work. This is something practical that you can do or get started on within seven days of listening to the interview and which will stretch you creatively and personally in a meaningful way. And if you are a regular listener, then you'll be used to me starting each season by encouraging you to listen to every episode. Now, obviously, I'm a little biased here, having recorded all the episodes myself. Of course, I love them. But even more important than that, I design every season to have a balance of different creative professions and points of view. So I really do design it that the whole thing creates a a kind of composite picture that you don't just, you won't get the whole picture from listening just to individual episodes. So every season features practitioners in the fine arts, as well as creatives in more commercial industries. 
Some interviews will focus more on the creative process and others on personal and professional development. There will also be episodes with advice on running a creative business or making the most of technology or ways of finding an audience for your work. And the common thread running through every episode is the human factor in all of this. Because I ask my guests about their inspirations and motivation, how they plan and work for success, how they deal with failure, rejection and criticism, how they handle the pressures of fame or of running a business, and what it is that makes all the struggles and difficulties worthwhile. And of course, these are the things that are common whatever profession you work in as a creative. So, that's what the show is all about, and I hope you'll join me and my guests as we voyage further into the universe of the 21st century creative. If you want to be sure to hear every episode as soon as it comes out, do make sure you're subscribed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. If you have any feedback on the show, you can always contact me via the form at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. You can also tweet me. I'm at Mark McGuinness. That's M-A-R-K-M-C-G-U-I-N-N-E-S-S. And you can also reach me via email if you subscribe to the 21st Century Creative mailing list. Just reply to any of the emails you receive, and it will come through to me. Some people are a bit surprised when I reply. They think there's either a robot or an admin person there. But I do make a point of looking out for your emails and responding as soon as I can. And if you're not on the mailing list and you would like to receive every episode via email, plus the free creative career course I send out, that's the 21st Century Creative Foundation course, then you can sign up for all of that at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you've been listening to the show for a while and you're finding it helpful in your work, there's one thing that you can do that will take less than five seconds that will really help me and help the show to reach new listeners. And that's to look at the show in your iTunes podcast app, which you may well have open right now as you're listening to this, and just scroll down to the ratings and review section and simply tap to give a rating out of five stars. You don't need to leave a review to do this. I do realize you're busy and it's, it takes time to sit down and think of something to say in a review and type it in, but you don't need to do any of that. You can simply tap the stars to give your rating and that will show up on iTunes and help other listeners like you find the show. Okay, one last thing before we plunge into episode one. If you're an experienced creative, that means you have at least five to ten years experience in your creative field and you have an outsized dream or ambition for the next phase of your creative career, then you may be the kind of person who would benefit from getting my help one-to-one as a coach. Since the mid-90s, I've been coaching high performers in the arts and the creative industries to achieve their ambitions. I've worked with hundreds of creatives over the years, so if you have a big goal or you're facing a big challenge, chances are I've come across something similar before and helped someone very like you 
to rise to the challenge. So, if you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then I have some questions for you that will help you reflect on your current situation and focus your intentions on what you want to achieve. You can find the questions at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions. And when I receive your answers, if I think we could be a good fit for working together, then I'll arrange a time for us to talk. Right, that is everything you need to know to make the most of season four. We're getting started today with an interview with Brian Clark, a very unusual creative entrepreneur. And Brian actually played an important role in the genesis of the 21st century creative. So listen out for that story a bit later on in the show. Before we get to that, I have something to say about the influence of your surroundings on your creativity. The poet Philip Larkin once said that all his best poems were written in rooms on the top floor of a building. He once had to live in a basement flat and got writer's block. He didn't elaborate why, but there must have been something about being up and above the world below, able to survey it from on high, that was conducive to writing poetry. It's probably no coincidence that one of his best-known poems, High Windows, ends with the image of looking out through high windows at a deep blue sky. Logically, there was no reason why he couldn't have written just as well in the basement as the ground floor. But creativity is not logical. Larkin was sensitive to the conditions where he did his best work, and he arranged his environment accordingly. Personally, I do like being higher up, but the critical factor for me isn't height, it's solitude. You see, to me, hell would be an open-plan office where I'm trying to get my work done with constant noise and bustle around me, with non-stop interruptions and urgent requests, and having to attend meetings all day long. So, I've arranged my work and my life so that I work from home, with no time wasted on commuting or meetings or office politics or gossip. I can work without interruption and end the day with a sense of satisfaction that I've created something new today and served my clients well. But when I describe this ideal day to some clients, their faces fill with horror. They couldn't bear to be alone all day because they thrive when they're surrounded by people and bustle and activity. So I encourage them to find that kind of workplace, either by joining a company or collaborating with partners or finding a local co-working space. Other clients hate to stand still and couldn't bear to be in the same place for long. They travel the world, finding new inspiration and stimulation in every fresh place they visit. So I help them create that environment for themselves. The same goes for you. Your chances of creating your best work improve significantly when you find 
or create the kind of environment that suits your kind of work and your kind of personality. Only you know the right environment for your creativity. But here are some questions that may help you figure it out. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Do you work best on your own or as part of a team? Would you rather have a predictable daily routine or as much novelty and variety as possible? Do you like to work in the same place every day or to keep moving around? Think about the best working environment you ever had. What was that like? What conditions were particularly conducive to you doing your best work? And how much of that environment can you recreate right now? Another fun way to research your ideal environment is to do a Google image search for writers' workplaces or artists' studios or whatever the equivalent is for your creative work and see what inspiration you come across. However you do it, treat the process of designing your environment as a creative project in its own right. This is an environment to help you do what you love, remember? So make sure you create it with love. Brian Clark is a writer and entrepreneur, best known as the founder of the hugely influential website copyblogger.com. Back in 2006, Brian was one of the first people to show how copywriting techniques could be used to attract attention online. He was also a pioneer of content marketing, showing creative people how they could use their skills at writing or making other media to build an audience for their work and find customers for their business. From Copyblogger, Brian launched a string of successful businesses selling e-learning, membership sites, software, WordPress themes, web hosting, and conferences. Brian's companies reached eight figures revenue per year with no advertising and no venture capital funding. He maintained his independence by keeping his business small and selling direct to his audience. He recently sold the Studio Press WordPress themes division of his company, and after taking his family on a round-the-world trip, is now renewing his focus on small projects with outsized income and impact. The Seven Figures Small is one of the current themes of his podcast, Unemployable. He also writes about personal development and financial freedom for Generation X at Further.net. As a champion of the small creative enterprise and a longtime example of taking an unconventional and very creative career path, Brian is the perfect guest to kick off season four by mapping out strategies to help you thrive as an independent creative in the 21st century. And Brian is also a pivotal figure for the 21st century creative, because this podcast would very likely not exist, at least in the same form, if it weren't for him. You see, I learned how to design, launch, and produce a media project like this 
directly from Brian. Back in 2008, I partnered with Brian and also Tony Clark, no relation, to launch the Lateral Action blog. Our mission was to help independent-minded creatives become more creative, productive and successful. At that time, I'd been blogging for less than two years while Brian was already a very successful online entrepreneur. Plenty of people have asked how I came to partner with Brian, so here's the story. You see, I was one of the first readers of Copyblogger and one of the first students to enroll in his teaching sales course, which was all about creating profitable e-learning courses. When I saw the potential of e-learning, I realized two things. Firstly, I wanted to create a course myself. And secondly, I didn't want to do it alone. I noticed Brian mentioned that he was open to joint venture proposals from students and realized he would be my ideal partner. It felt like a long shot, but I don't mind long shots. I figured if I'm going to start looking for a partner, I might as well start at the top. So one Sunday morning, I took a deep breath and wrote an email to Brian explaining my vision for the course and why I would love to work with him on the project. I figured it would be at least a week before I heard back, so I was amazed to get a response the same day. Brian said that he and Tony had been thinking about doing something similar, and they'd already floated my name as a potential partner. I was thrilled that they were interested, and absolutely flabbergasted to hear they'd been talking about me already. Later on, I discovered Brian takes a very strategic approach to everything, including identifying potential partners for future projects. So, the three of us met on Skype the following day, and by the end of the week, we were business partners, which was the beginning of a big adventure for me. Working with Brian, Tony, and also Sonia Simone, our other partner, really put me in the spotlight, because my part of the partnership was to write the weekly lateral action blog. And when we launched the blog, and Brian introduced it to the copy blogger audience, I suddenly found myself writing for a much bigger readership than I'd ever had before. Every week, Brian would cast his eyes over my article and give me feedback before we published it on the blog. So I had an amazing apprenticeship as a writer, learning firsthand from one of the most successful bloggers on the planet. In 2009, we created and launched the Creative Entrepreneur Roadmap, an in-depth e-learning program to help creatives succeed as creative entrepreneurs, which meant I got to collaborate on the planning, creation, and launch of a product with a seat in the cockpit as Brian flew the spaceship. Eventually, Brian, Tony, and Sonia's other projects took off at light speed, which meant we agreed to part ways with me taking over lateral action as a solo operator. But we've stayed in touch, and I occasionally consult Brian for advice on my projects. And what I learned from my apprenticeship with Brian has served me well on everything I've done since then. It enabled me to keep growing the audience at lateral action and to take advantage of the self-publishing revolution by writing and launching a series of books for creatives. More recently, having an online presence and audience has given me and my family the freedom to move from London to Bristol in the West Country, to be nearer the rest of my family 
and enjoy a better quality of life. Brian's teachings also helped me to create the 21st Century Creative Podcast. So, if you're listening to this and you find the show helpful, then we all owe Brian some thanks for that. In this interview, Brian tells us the story of his early years as an entrepreneur and the hard lessons he learned before launching Copyblogger. He also explains the fundamentals of growing an audience and building a thriving business around your creative talent. Brian and his students have done very well financially from applying these principles. But what shines through really strongly in this conversation is something more important than money, and that's the freedom to work and create and live on your own terms. If that's the kind of freedom that matters to you, you'll find plenty to relate to in this conversation about how to approach your creative career if you're fundamentally and proudly unemployable. Brian, how well did the career advice that you received in high school prepare you for the reality of how your careers unfolded? You know, I don't think I recall getting any career advice in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that just may be age. Uh, But I just recall that the world uh, seemed to operate a very different way. Um, I, my general understanding was that I should go to college and mm-hmm. somehow all would be revealed, um, in college, which was, you know, a very enlightening experience as far as being exposed to new ideas and whatnot. But as far as a career, mm, so, Then I went to law school because (laughs) I didn't know still (laughs) what I was supposed to do, but uh, I knew that would make my mom proud. And, you know, there you go. That's, uh, it was all very murky. There was no real guidance. And that may have been a little bit uh, due to, you know, being the first one in my family to go to college and then, you know, certainly on from there. Um, But it was just, you know, work hard, uh, do the right thing, you know, very, very, very general. So I think I I lacked in guidance, uh, which kind of left me to my own devices to just explore and figure things out. And it was interesting that I, you know, I did graduate from law school. I did start practicing law. And that's really when I started figuring things out for myself And that led to a very interesting 20-year entrepreneurial journey. And so what was the point where you realized that you weren't cut out for the conventional path? Well, it was obviously, uh, I had a very lucrative job with a big law firm. And at the time, I just thought, I hate practicing law, which was true. But I think... A little bit later, I started to realize that I just didn't like following uh, someone else's directions, honestly. Uh, I had this very independent (laughs) streak in me. Mm -hmm. And um, even though I was very, very clueless, uh, had never taken a business class, never read a marketing book, you know, that's, that's a bad position to be in to have that kind of cocky independent streak, isn't it? But 
I think uh, a lot of people realize that what they're ultimately wanting is creative freedom, you know, and, and that's how I think about it, even in the context of, of starting businesses. I did aspire to be a writer. Um, and though I just, I looked at uh, traditional publishing, I looked at Los Angeles, you know, entering the screenwriting trade. And mm -hmm. again, it just seemed like you're at the whim of someone else, whether it be a publisher, a producer, what have you. And then that's what led me to look at the internet because for better or worse, it seemed that I could carve out my own path there. And I get, that was my, my drive um, looking back. And it is to this day, you know, I just do not have an interest in really following someone else's script. And so what was your first venture then when you stepped out of the, the straight and narrow of the lawyerly path? It's interesting because it was at the time, you know, this is the late 90s. So it's really before blogging. It's certainly before what we now call social media by a lot. Um, and what a lot of people were doing back then was publishing uh, e-zines, uh, email newsletters. Ironically, those are going strong uh, 20 mm -hmm. years later, which is fascinating, isn't it? Um but yeah, so really, you know, back then there weren't courses and books and conferences that, you know, tell you, take you by the hand and tell you how to do certain things. You just kind of had to watch other people. Uh, you had to create relationships with those people. And, and that was so much easier back then, it seems. You know, you could reach out to someone and just about anyone's going to talk to you. I remember, here's interesting, so... The first book I was ever featured in was Dan Pink's Free Agent Nation. And that happened just because I wrote Dan, who this was his first book. He had just written mm -hmm. an article on Fast Company. And I just, you know, we just started talking to each other. Now, think about that 20 years later. Dan Pink, of course, mm -hmm. is a huge, yeah. prolific, yeah. successful author. You know, I went my own path. But it, it's just fascinating to me that... I hope we never completely lose that aspect of, you know, just being able to reach out to people and, and tell them you admire their work and their a relationship, you know, comes out of that. But so I started this newsletter uh, venture and I thought, you know, if I wrote good stuff and built an audience, I would make tons of money in advertising and sponsorships. And I wrote pretty good stuff and I did build audiences, which was the vet, you know, that was the most important thing to come to that. You know, I learned how to do that, but I had no idea how to make money with it. And I didn't. So that was my one business out of <laughs> 11 that failed. That's not a bad odds, is it? Turned out okay. Yeah. But at the time I just looked back at it. I'm like, you really had no idea what you were doing at all. <laughs> but I did pick up the non conventional or new skills that now, as we do have a, a mainstreaming of social media and Instagram influencers and all this that is all built around attracting a following, for better or worse, in some cases, mm -hmm. I learned that in the late 90s. So that's, to me, the secret, which is if you can bring value to others, whether it be 
in the, the most shallow sense on Instagram or in the most uh, deep sense with poetry, for example, then you can figure out how to make a career out of that. Yeah, I mean, this is the big thing I learned from you is um, if you have an audience, if you have a connection, if you have people that you can that you can help who know about who you are, then a lot of options open up for you. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. So where did you go from there? You, you learned how to build an audience, but you weren't making money. Well, what happened next? Well, I had to make money to pay the bills. Um, I didn't have a huge stockpile of savings after leaving uh, the law firm. Had some. Uh, but, you know, I just kind of, I think a, a light bulb went off that, you know, oh, I, okay, so the first marketing book I ever read was uh, in 1999. It was called Permission Marketing by Seth Godin. And that just kind of helped clarify a lot of what I was missing, this whole context of Seth's background in direct marketing, which I know is an ugly phrase to some, but not in the way he meant it. It just meant you have a direct relationship with your potential customer, client, what have you, uh, rather than going through some intermediary. So he he basically explained that the internet is a direct marketing environment. So yes, you need to you know build an audience with email uh, specifically, and again, still today. And uh, but you have to have something to sell them. That was the part I was missing. It <laughs> wasn't really. Um, you know, you advertising is hard and it just got harder and harder and harder over the decades since then. Um, so I was like, okay, great. Got it. I know I can do this. Um, I can attract people to me. And if I have something relevant to sell them, then I can make money. And the only thing I had to sell was legal services in my mind at the time. Yeah. Right. Uh, I did have a law license. I had four years of legal experience. I was still a young attorney. But the, here's the thing about young attorneys. They have to do the work that's given to them by the partners because the partners have the clients. Mm -hmm. So if you become the person who gets the clients, then you're also cutting out that intermediary, right? So yeah. I said, I can do that. So I started a, a legal email newsletter that talked about the intersection of law and this new environment called the internet. Now, there was no one really writing about this stuff mm. um, from the legal perspective at that time, uh, outside of maybe academic circles. And I did it in, the, in a very conversational, you know, friendly way. And the client started coming. And it, that was it. That was my first success. And I often tell people, I could have built a pretty powerful law firm off of that. But I knew better. I knew that even though I think my main issue was I don't like working for other people, I also didn't like practicing law. So that was one of my first lessons in making yourself attractive to clients. Don't act like you want them that much because I didn't. <laughs> you know, I, I, only wanted, <laughs> I only wanted a certain amount of clients to make enough money to pay the bills so that I could keep working on the other business that I, I hadn't figured out was going to fail yet. So, uh, you know, I just was very picky and I'm like, okay, uh, I'm going to work with you because you're going to put me on retainer and pay me every month to advise your business. Okay, great. And that's where I ended up kind of 
creating this very stable income, but not too much. I, I mm-hmm. avoided the siren call of, you know, taking on everything to make more money. And that allowed me to keep working on the other thing. Eventually, the dot-com crash happened, and that killed that business, uh, which was a blessing. But that's when I started thinking about, okay, now what do you do that doesn't involve law? And where did you land next? So, I, I, again, I I love reflecting on this because it it shows me, you know, your own psychological foibles. But at the time... I had a chip on my shoulder. I had to prove that I could succeed in a business that didn't rely on my law license. Um, And I ended up choosing real estate because of a lot of things. Uh, One was my legal background did kind of inform aspects of that, uh, but it's very easy to get a real estate license. Um, But it also uh, kind of taught me how I could position myself in a unique way. See, these are all concepts uh, that we would later explore in great detail once we got to Copyblogger. But, you know, it was all kind of new to me. It came from studying copywriting and marketing and, and starting to, at a very basic level, understanding that you have to be unique. You have to offer value that someone else isn't. Uh, the other thing was, again, the young internet and looking at what um, other realtors were trying to do to market themselves online. And I was like, this is going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. These people have no idea what they're doing. Uh, And very few people did, to be honest. And again, that was just kind of what I fortunately stumbled into at that time. So the the final reason I chose real estate, other than you can make a lot of money with a, a small, just by yourself, but or with a very small business, which was kind of my criteria. Um, So at that time, uh, there's something called IDX, which is a technology that allows the MLS, the the home listings basically, to be published on websites. And this was a very new thing in 2001. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dallas, where I was living at the time, happened to be one of the earliest cities to do it. And I knew that buyers were looking online for houses. So all of a sudden I'm like, I've got, I've got the content, if you will, that buyers are looking for, which is the homelessness, <laughs> right? even though they're not mine. And then I supplement that with educational content, why I'm a better choice than Joe Blow, who got his real estate license and, and doesn't have a clue about actually representing people. So I did play the legal card mm-hmm. without practicing law, right? But we play to our yeah. strengths. Yeah, And it was just a quick and lucrative success. And that's when I ran into a, a completely different issue, which is not everything's marketing. Marketing is important. Bringing in the business is important. But then you have to manage the business. And uh, I wasn't good at that at all because, again, I knew nothing about it. <laughs> so you could see this path I went on where I'm just running up against the wall of my own incompetence step after step. And then and just just fortunately, each step beyond, I figured out I didn't learn any hard lessons or I didn't ignore any hard lessons. Let's put it that way. So I might have made every mistake along the way, but I always learn from them. And that's why things got progressively better as time went on. 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, one of my mottos is question everything, but don't forget to listen to the answers. And it looks like every step of the way, you you know, you've got a, a different piece of the jigsaw from each business in turn. So after the real estate, well, that was when Copyblogger launched, right? Well, not directly. Um, around 2005, again, so this is a successful business. I brought in a partner. We've got agents working for us. Uh, they're all, you know, independent contractors in the States. I don't know how it is in the UK, but so it was still a very small kind of lean business, but it, at the same time, uh, it, it was quite the management chore for me. Uh, I was very bad at processes. I kept everything locked up inside my head, which all of this stuff you're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in the spring of 2005, I uh, suffered a a head injury uh, from going snowboarding. And I didn't realize how serious it was for a while. Um, But I ended up having to have brain surgery. It was a big deal. I was very fortunate to come out of that. Uh, It could have gone much worse, right? I, I really realize now how lucky I am that I made a full recovery after that. It was a it was a serious procedure. But to me, all it was was like a moment of enlightenment. I mean, I can almost say that literally because when I woke up, I had this, you know, I am not this collection of thoughts and memories experience. Yeah. You know, I mean, I really felt yeah. that myself is an illusion. Right. <laughs> um, but with, with that was every reason I told myself that I couldn't create the kind of business I had been wanting to for a year or so um, because of my obligations. You know, I, I had a young daughter, I had a mm-hmm. wife, I had, my, my son was just born. And all of that just kind of poofed away. I don't know that it was confidence so much as it was just resolve that I was never going to do anything, whether it be law, real estate, whatever, just for money or just for security or, you know, and bless my wife. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> but so, so basically I effectively walked away from that real estate business. I tried to sell it to my partner um, and it failed within six months because guess what? Everything was locked up inside right, my head. Right. They didn't know how to do the part I was really good at, which was bringing in all that business. And so I was, you know, let, they, they couldn't pay me anymore, so it, it just kind of went away. Um, so again, I found myself with my back against the wall, and but I was looking around at what was happening at that time with blogging and whatnot and reflecting on it from my perspective of what I'd been doing for, I guess, the last eight years at that point. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? This is interesting stuff. There's fascinating stuff going on with people who are effectively writers, but they are using their writing skills to create entrepreneurial ventures. And that's, that's me. That's what I want to do. I mean, that's what I have been doing in some way, except not as in, in the purest form of what we would call an online business. Again, at the time that was a foreign concept. Now everyone's, you know, like, Oh, I get it. You can make an app. It's, you know, it's all a digital business. 
back then people thought I was crazy. This this is a recurring theme, mm-hmm. Mark. Um, people thinking Brian is crazy. <laughs> so, but just because I'm paying attention to the future, and most people live in the present or are largely the past. You know, I've, that's a that's an observation I think we we could all make when we have been involved in uh, specifically the internet, uh, kind of ahead of the rest of the world. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, funny enough, I started my first blog around about the same time you started Copyblogger. But of course, I didn't have the eight years of experience that you had under your belt. And I remember trying to explain it to my previous, you know, my ex-business partner. I said, well, because I'd read Seth, Seth Godin too. And I said, well, he was saying, what are you doing putting, you're writing articles and, and giving them away for free. That's valuable intellectual property. Why are you giving it away? You should charge people for that. And I said, yeah, but you know, there's this guy called Seth Godin in America who says, if you do this, then, then there'll be the magic trail of breadcrumbs will come back. And your business will thrive. And like, you know, poor old Roy, he was quite a bit older than me. He looked at me like I was completely insane. Yeah. Oh, so, you know, same thing with me. Um, when attorneys found out I was giving away articles to bring in business, they thought I was crazy. I'm like, what, you know, what are you afraid of? What are you giving away? You're licensed by the state to practice law. You're, you're pretty safe. You know what I'm saying? You can't just read your blog and set up and, and compete. Yeah. And same thing with real estate. I'm like, oh, well, I'm not going to just tell them, you know, everything that they can do. I'm like, if you're any good, they should hire you because they'll never, you could tell them everything and they'll never be as good as you, right? That's not how our service economy works. People want yeah. someone else to do it for them. They just want to make the right choice. And that's what you're helping them do. Anyway, yeah, that that attitude was so prevalent. Um, but fortunately, I was pretty good at just ignoring that and just say, I'm sorry, you don't understand. You haven't thought about it enough. You know, that's fine. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and and keep doing what I'm doing. Thankfully, I did. Um, so, yeah. So with Copyblogger, I was entering into this nascent commercial blogging space with a different approach because they were right there where I was in 1998, which is you create content, you sell ads, you get rich. No. I mean, some blogs, like if you were as big as TechCrunch, then you could make some money from ads. But it was never the most lucrative aspect of it. So I came in with two basic premises that that I wanted people to accept, that applying copywriting techniques, specifically direct response copywriting, to content can make it more interesting, engaging, and useful to people. That was one thing. And then the other thing was you should sell stuff not advertising. I mean, whether products, services, whatever, but not ads. In other words, don't sell out your audience, sell to your audience. And some bloggers at the time just thought that was basically Satan spawn coming to <laughs> yes, life. Yes, some people were really put out sh- by it, weren't they? They were. And it was great because they didn't understand that their audience thought differently. So they would, you know, ripped me a new one and and linked to me and their audience followed the link over and they became my audience um, because people were interested in what I was talking about. And, uh, and all that sounds really quaint now, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, that's 2006 and, and you have to, (laughs) 
you have to convince people that it's okay to engage in commerce effectively. <laughs> and now it's almost too out of control. But that's what it was. And just to maybe give people a little context that this might sound a bit strange. So when I was exploring the, the blogging space for the first time, there were you know, there were the kind of the hobby bloggers, the people who'd just been doing it, you know, just to share their ideas. There were the, there was a lot of marketing bloggers who were like trying to ape Seth Godin and be really insightful and clever and tell us about the next big thing in marketing. And then there was the the pro blogger type crowd that there were a load of ads of blogs covered in AdSense where they were trying to get enough traffic and page views to sell from ads and then i come across copy blogger and i remember the day it's your tagline was i think it said how to sell with rss and blogs or something like that and i'd never seen anything like that before and that was like the fastest thing i subscribed to because i thought that's exactly what i want i have something to sell i have coaching and training and you were the only person that i could see that was joining up the dots so that that was how I first came across you. Was yeah, it's interesting how well I did with the uh, poet market like between you and Robert Bruce. <laughs> you two of my earliest, really good. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, but yeah, a, a lot of really creative people uh, were not put off by that word "sell." They were intrigued. And I found that fascinating because there was a lot of pushback, uh, you know, during the early years, uh, just people who didn't think marketing belonged on the internet whatsoever. And I was kind of like, you know, you're, you're not being realistic now. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's where it started. And two years later was when what we were talking about uh, got the name content marketing. And basically, Joe Paluzzi, who founded Content Marketing Institute, came from the corporate environment, branded content, all of that kind of stuff, stuff I'd never heard of because, hello, I'd never worked in that environment. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, uh, what you're talking about really well is called content marketing. Can we agree on that? And I was like, I hate that. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible phrase. And he's like, yeah, but but you got to call it something. So... In 2008, that's when we started using the terminology of, of, of content marketing. And now it's a $50 billion industry. I mean, who knew? Right. And, and everybody's talking about it. So, and, you know, for some people, they, they think it's great. Other people think, oh, you know, it's, it's, you know my, my stuff is not content. I mean, what is that? What is yeah. that? Forget the terminology. What, what is it about content or media? How does it work in a marketing sense? And particularly, you know, maybe if I'm a creator, if I'm a, an artist or a creative of some kind, I'm thinking, well, what can I produce that's going to help me achieve my professional goals? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's essentially a more valuable form of capturing and holding attention than what you would think of with a straight-up marketing message, which is generally pretty straight to the point about what they're selling, yeah. right? So the idea of quote unquote, content marketing is that people want valuable information. And if you provide it, and you therefore begin that uh, relationship, I guess, I mean, you know, the, the basic tenets of marketing is you got to start with attention, uh, before you can get someone to really understand what the benefit is to them, 
of doing business with you, okay? So the attention came in the form, uh, in my case, with educational content related to um, marketing, growing a business online, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and we gave that away for free. But then we ended up getting into uh, WordPress software, themes, plugins, hosting, our own CMS. Next thing you know, giving away free information led to eight figures a year in revenue, which still some people, you tell them that and they're like, that's not possible. And I'm like, sure it is. It's just very simple when you get down to it. You know, you're attracting people that have an interest and a desire to become better at something. You make them better at that. And then you sell them the tools that you, they need to, to do that thing. I mean, it, when you think about it that way, it's very easy. Um, let me tell this story because given everything that's happened since then, it's, it's fascinating to me, this example of content marketing. So just about everyone in the world is familiar with Marvel now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think they have the biggest movie in the world uh, of all time with Endgame now. And that was 22 movies starting with Iron Man in 2008. Okay. A lot of people don't realize that in the late 90s, Marvel was bankrupt. And they did go bankrupt. They were reorganized and brought out of bankruptcy with a plan that they would focus on their merchandise sales, meaning toys, basically, you know, Spider-Man, X-Men, mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. And, but they didn't have any money to market their stuff. So what they did was do deals with Sony and Fox to license their characters for films, Spider-Man and the X-Men being the two prominent mm -hmm. ones. And so they were paid some money, obviously, to license their intellectual property, but nothing compared to what the studios made from the movies, the early, you know, the first three Spider-Man movies, the first three X-Men movies. And they did that because those movies, that content, even though they weren't charging for it and making money themselves, were giant commercials for what they were selling, which was the mm -hmm. toys and the merchandise, yeah. right? That's content marketing. That's a very strategic wow. use of intellectual property to pull yourself out of a hole. Now, and then they made enough money until they could make their own films. And guess what their first film was? Iron Man <laughs> in 2008. And the rest is history. They're acquired by Disney for $4 billion. And that was a bargain for Disney, as we now know. So I love that story because to the people out there that uh, you and I have both dealt with in the past that think you're a moron. I'm just like, <laughs> no, I mean, it's actually very, very savvy. It's almost advanced business strategy, right? Yeah. But now it's become the norm. So we're almost in the opposite situation now where too many people perhaps may be uh, creating content and that it's not necessarily good enough. So you start to change your perspective. Like for example, I'm big in curation now because the problem in 2006 was there wasn't enough good content in the blogging world. It was too self-centered. Yeah. Uh, it was it was too like every blogger thought the world was interested in them. No, people are interested in themselves, and <laughs> they're only interested in you to the extent that you can help them. Um, 
And, and that's true even with art. I know that comes across poorly, but unless your art speaks to me, it is of no benefit to me, right? It's, a, it's the same thing. We're all serving other people, even whether we call ourselves artists or entrepreneurs or some mix thereof, which I think is the ideal ratio. Well, if I could, you know, kind of share my perspective, what I took from what you were teaching. And, you know, maybe if somebody's sitting there listening, well, I I'm, I could never get to eight figures a year or revenue or billions of dollars like Marvel. But you really rescued me from trying to be interesting on my blog. <laughs> so I read Seth Godin. I was looking around at all these marketing bloggers, trying to be, and other bloggers, trying to be clever and insightful and whatever. And it, it wasn't really happening for me. And then I read Copy Blogger, and it was saying, but, you know, be useful, be helpful. And I thought, well, I know how to do that because I'm a coach, I'm a trainer. And so I started writing as though I were talking to my coaching client, and I was saying, you know, stuff around creative blocks or productivity, or you know, and, and how to get focus time for creative work in the middle of all the email and digital distractions and so on. And that was when my blog started to take off. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of obvious now in retrospect, but to me at that point, it, it wasn't. And, you know, I had something to sell, which was the coaching and training services. And once I started doing that, then the leads started coming in because, I mean, my previous business had been me in a telephone ringing people up, which I didn't enjoy. And uh. this reversed it. People started phoning me and emailing me once I'd put content out there that demonstrated I could help. And I remember talking to one ad agency one day who rang me up and they said, well, we love this because I'd written an ebook on time management for creative people that I'd given away. And I got a phone call from an ad agency saying, oh, well, we'd love you to come in and run a workshop on it. And I stupidly said to them, but all the information's in the ebook. Why didn't you just give them that? And she said, well, <laughs> she said, well, the thing is they don't have the time to read it because they're so disorganized. I said, can you come, if you come in and explain it, I mean, she was telling me how to sell to her. If you come in and explain it, we'll pay you to do that. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so... So that's how it can join up. It's certainly how it joined up for me. That is great. Not only not only did she contact you, but she told you how to convince her. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I failed to mention that the, the original approach to everything, you know, at the beginning uh, with content and learning copywriting and learning how to do everything with words where people came to me was simply because there was no way I'm going to cold call anyone. I don't like networking. Uh, I'm an introvert when it comes down to it. Now, people sometimes find that surprising because I can go stand and talk to a you know, thousand people from a stage, but that just means you don't understand introversion yeah. because <laughs> after that, I'm in the hotel yeah. room uh, <laughs> just decompressing, yeah. right? Um, it's not that you're shy. It's just that people tend to take energy from you instead of give it to you, uh, which extroverts enjoy. But uh, yeah, so that's why I designed everything that way from the beginning. And that's just as true today as it, as it was back then. So, you know, going right back to the beginning, the point where you and similar time that I was leaving college, we were in this world where there was a sensible, safe option. And we were the we were the morons. We were the idiots who just 
couldn't deal with that and had to go and do it another way and, and found out through trial and error. But that world has really changed, hasn't it? I mean, the, the safe, secure job is, is, is certainly not as safe and secure. And, and the risky path, you know, be going out on your own is, is for various reasons becoming more popular. I mean, what, what's changed? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think the beginning of the there is no such thing as job security, there is no gold watch and a pension at the end of this, that all started to be talked about uh, about that time, circling back to Dan Pink and Free Agent Nation. I mean, he was way ahead of his time as far as when that would happen. He was literally 20 years too soon. But now we see it, it's all happening. <clears throat> you know, not only is freelancing incredibly common, it's desirable. It's it's a higher status role in, for many people. Um, you know, that's why I have a podcast called Unemployable. You know, it's not like you can't get a job. You just don't want one, right? I mean, um, but uh, yeah, I think it began – in the 90s. Uh, but I think, you know, what's happened with, uh, there was the dot-com crash, then there was 2008, and the millennial generation in particular realizes, yeah, you, you can't trust an employer with your security and livelihood. And that's why they became the first generation who job hopped without shame. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, like we it used to be a thing that you didn't want to move around a lot or potential employers would in the future would think you were flaky. Yeah. What, why didn't you stick around longer? What, you know, what went wrong? Exactly. And now it's like, why would I? I mean, that that's, I think, the attitude from um, from younger people. But the interesting thing about millennials is despite the kind of uh, stereotype of the hoodied tech bro billionaire, those are very rare. Millennials aren't that entrepreneurial. Gen X is very entrepreneurial because, again, that that nasty independent streak we mm -hmm. had, how dare us think for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think it's uh, it's been coming for a long time. The attitude is flipped from being sitting there stammering why you change jobs three times in four years to where everyone is kind of a free agent and you have to think that way and you need to think in terms of income, not jobs. So the, the whole concept of the side hustle and, and then entrepreneurism and, and freelancing and gigs and all of this stuff just presents a mishmash of opportunities to try to craft the kind of it's almost weird to use the word career anymore, isn't yeah. it? I mean, um, so I am, of course, a huge advocate for working for yourself in a in a very uh, lucrative way, obviously. But I think they're just like my path was one of incremental improvement, uh, incremental learning from mistakes, experience, and all that. The one difference I can say today is unlike 98 – there's tons of information yeah. about whether you want to go out on your own as an entrepreneur, as a freelancer. I mean, it's almost too much. So I think the ecosystem is there to support people 
But the thing I like about what you do is that I think the creative person is the only one who has a legit shot. Your average, you know, hustler type who just wants to make money, who doesn't care about their craft or doesn't care what they're actually putting out in the world. I'm not saying those people can't succeed, but you know, it, it's, it's getting tougher unless you have uh, a creative perspective that like you, you learned brings value. But, and, and to say that you still weren't creative in, in your writing back then is wrong because that's not true. I mean, you have a certain flair and style that only a frustrated poet could bring, <laughs> to, <laughs> you know? I mean, so, so I don't want you to sell yourself short because you had a certain sensibility that I think always worked to your advantage. And that's why I'm always telling people, uh, yes, you can build uh, a very lucrative business out of just yourself or a very small team or, you know, with the aid of freelancers and whatnot. But at the heart of technology and your outsourcing and all of that cold, hard stuff is a creative human being that has to shine through. And, you know, picking up on what you were saying about content marketing, actually being a very sophisticated marketing strategy and business strategy, you know, it's always struck me as paradoxical that the people who are best at doing this are the ones who generally think that they're not good at business, particularly with the tsunami of content these days. If you're going to cut through, it's got to be something really good and really original, and that means being really creative. Yeah, I think it's um, to a certain degree that outsider mentality, and if you will, an artistic mentality, that often makes a difference. And and I'm reflecting on a lot of the people that kind of came up uh, at the same time I did. Uh, some of them by, you know, posting on Copyblogger. Uh, I remember, you know, the, the, believe it or not, the project you and I and Tony did, Lateral Action, which is now yeah. your project solely, um, during that run, it was probably the happiest I was. You know, I, I really enjoyed that project. And the only reason Tony and I took off is because the other stuff we had created was growing. It was incredibly lucrative. It required serious management and then you know what happened. Then we ended up merging the companies together and, and going on that, you know, big eight-figure journey. So it wasn't – it was – I won't say it was obligation, but it was just one of those, yeah, we, we really need to pay attention to this, you know. But that sort of creative expression is what I do this for, not necessarily the money. You got to make money. And there's nothing wrong with making lots of it in my <laughs> mind. But – um uh, yeah, but that can't be the thing. And too often in the startup world, uh, you know, where it's all about getting money and cashing out and this and that, no wonder the success rate is so dismal. There's no heart in that. There's no, there's no passion in that, you know. And I'm not one of these chase your passion type guys. I'm saying you develop a passion for what you're doing when you realize that there's a particular audience, a particular group of people, a particular type of person that you've decided you're going to give your all to 
and they're going to reward you by doing business with you. So if I'm listening to this conversation and say I'm in a job and I'm really unhappy in my job and I want to strike out on my own, or maybe I've made the transition, I'm self-employed, but I'm struggling to make it work. What advice do you have for me? I mean, what are the fundamentals of building a small but thriving creative business? Well, the ultimate thing is, so going back to the beginning of Copyblogger, I had no product, I had no service. I only knew that I could share things with people that they that would help them, yeah. right? And that I would figure it out. And that's exactly, that's another aspect that people kind of crinkle up their faces at you a little bit. But here's how it normally goes. You think of something you want to sell people, and then you go look for people to buy it. Now, how do you know anyone wants that thing necessarily? Or if they want that thing, do they want it from you in your particular way? Well, you you kind of don't. That That's backwards, and yet that's the way people think it's done. So I, on the other hand, started with not even a market. It's really a, a, a tangible group of people that uh, followed what I was doing, and I paid attention to them, and through that process – uh, combined with what I was teaching them, it, it became fairly obvious that uh, there were certain things that we could sell to them that they would buy from us because we had this relationship. They knew us, they liked us, they trusted us. And that's how it happened. So the real key here is to find a group of people you want to serve and then really try to figure out what it is that you need to give them um, in terms of a product or a service or a piece of art or what have you. Okay, so that's the person starting out. But yeah, let's think about another type of listener, maybe somebody who is doing well as a, an independent artist or creator or freelancer of some kind, and they're now getting advice that they need to scale up, they need to hire a team, they need to um, grow, you know, maximize their revenue, maybe step away from doing hands-on work in order to, to realize the full value of their business. What would you say to somebody like that? Is that, logically, that makes a lot of sense, you know, when you just look at the spreadsheet and the numbers, but does that always make sense for the kind of business that we're talking about? It depends. So, you know, I talk about this concept of seven figures small. So that comes from the growing number of no employee businesses that are making seven figures or more in annual revenue, it keeps growing. Why? Well, the same reason that you have companies uh, with market caps like Google, Facebook, Amazon, and yet they're tiny compared to US Steel or Ford or these kind of companies, AT&T back in, you know, mm -hmm. back in the day. So it, it's a congruent kind of phenomenon that technology is increasing productivity so that fewer people can do way more. Now you add the internet to that where you can reach uh, your particular brand of customer or client wherever they may be, and you've got a recipe for a very, very small lucrative business. So the idea behind that though is more of a mindset more than money, and it's driven by freedom. If you want to have it, if you design your business so that technology 
and contractors such as freelancers, consultants, vendors, etc., can accomplish what you're trying to do and thereby frees you up to do other things. Let's put it that way. So you could choose at that point to maximize your lifestyle, spend time with family, do other creative uh, endeavors that don't have to be commercial, which I think, you know, a lot of great art is created without the thought of trying to sell it to someone. Then great, you have that choice. But freedom also means you have the choice to grow that as big as you envision it to be. And you don't have to know from day one, but you do have to structure the business in such a way that you are building for freedom, freedom of choice, whether it be to have a nice life or to scale up and grow or somewhere in between or something different at different times. So let me put it this way. When I started Copy Blogger, all I wanted to do was make enough money to support my family. I just wanted to be happy at work. And by doing so, I also realized I had to structure the business in a way where I would do what I'm good at and that's it. And that I needed other people to do the things that I couldn't do. And that kind of led to my run of partnerships that uh, really I built the business off of. And then once we got to creating the larger company, the one after we merged several companies together and, and got bigger, it was never my aspiration to grow a company that big, to have that many employees. But each year I made the decision to take the next step forward. It, I had the freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad I did it. And now that we've sold off uh, most of the assets of that company, now I want to stay small. I mean, again, that's what drives me, my ability to choose uh, as much as possible with autonomy and competency and, and leading to mastery, the whole self-determinism thing. And now we're all kind of driven that way to a certain degree, but I think uh, there is a incredible force that says you should do things this way. And entrepreneurism, unfortunately, the narrative has is, you know, you take money, you get as big as possible. I mean, and, and that's the only thing that counts. And that's ridiculous. And I think more and more people are realizing, no, what I want is a business that allows me to make the choices I'm going to make. Yeah, I mean, this theme of freedom keeps coming through today, doesn't it? And I can totally relate to it to myself because, I mean, I, I'm certainly unemployable and for the same reason as you, that I just, I'm no good at having somebody tell me what to do. And I'm willing to pay the price of my stupid mistakes. I've made plenty of them. But, <laughs> but you know, I've kept fighting and, and working it out. And it's the most important thing for me is I get up in the morning and I've got the freedom to say, I'm going to work on this because I think it's important and I think it's is valuable and meaningful. Now, there's, there's a lot of work involved in going out and finding other people that it's valuable and meaningful too. But it's just fundamental, I think. You know, and there's lots of ways that you could grow a business, I'm hearing, and have more zeros at the end of the your turnover and profit and whatever, but you don't. If you don't have the more freedom, then what's the point? 
Yeah, and if you uh, look again at the growing freelance uh, economy, it's it's growing and getting bigger and. And most of those freelancers, I forget the percentages, there's a lot of great research on this, but a lot of those people make more money than they did when they had a job. And that's great, but but almost universally, they'll say that's not why they do it. They do it for freedom. And freedom is our innate human characteristic. No one likes to be told what to do. You and I just did something about it, right? I mean... I don't really, I, I do think there are people who enjoy the employee-employer relationship. It makes them feel better uh, about what they're doing. In the future, those people will still probably end up being freelancers of some sort. They'll just kind of fit within these other organizations that allow that entrepreneur to realize their goals, their choices. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think... It's really ever about anything other than freedom. Even people who chase money think that it's going to give them freedom and happiness. And yet, if you do it the wrong way, you end up trapped. And I've almost gone there myself. There were a couple times a few years ago where we're talking to private equity people of all things. And I came this close to signing a deal that would have ruined my life, but seemed like the thing to do at the time, right? And I just am thankful that even though, you know, some people got mad at me about it, I'm like, hey, I'm the one on the hook here. They don't want you. (laughs) They want me to continue to run this company uh, at their whim. And, you know, when someone dangles enough money in front of your face, you start thinking about it. But what's more important? Sorry, Brian, I'm just trying to imagine. Yeah, it would have been hell for you, but I'm also thinking about your poor boss. What would it have been like for them? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, I I would be no, I would be no picnic to deal with. Probably, <laughs> I actually am great at collaborating. I really am, but it's got to be on equal footing. You know what I'm saying? It it can't be. Uh, you're telling me, especially if you're yeah. wrong. It, it's almost yeah. that's the problem. And so often, people have more money than actual good judgment, and then you're all of a sudden beholden to someone who just has a bad idea and you know it, but you can't just like we couldn't necessarily convince the people who thought it was dumb to give away information for yeah. free. <laughs> you, you can't yeah. convince them to some degree. They're so kind of set in their worldview. So that's where the freedom to just go ahead and do it your way anyway, because you don't need their approval. But all of a sudden you can put yourself in those positions with investors uh, you know, by selling your company to another company and you're going to have to do a couple years working for them. Um, I think that scenario is the least painful because it may be painful, yeah. but you have money in your pocket and you know you're going to leave. So you yeah. just have to, you know, you just have to ride it Mark out. the X is on the calendar every day. But now, so, so now we kind of unwound that and I'm going back to mainly just me um, there are certain projects like Further that I will always, at least I think so, always keep to myself because it's a very personal thing to me and I'm not really worried if it makes money, although it can, you know, the, so, I can't so help. Further is your Generation X project, right? Yeah, well, it started out as uh, just kind of a general 
personal growth newsletter thing where I would share what mm -hmm. I was reading uh, once I figured that I actually needed some help in the rest of my life. I was good at business. And then I looked around and I'm like, yeah, you're, you're not doing too well at anything else. <laughs> <laughs> like your health and, and, you know, you got to improve your relationships and this is what's important. So, um, you know, that was really a very personal thing to me. And then I just kept doing it. And then I, you know, I, I, I was getting closer to 50 and I started realizing I was writing about midlife more, you know, a, a particular type mm -hmm. of person, right? This is very actually uh, on point for what we're talking about. I was really writing for people my age. And then I started thinking, you know, I'm really writing for Generation X, my generation, our generation. Um, and so I just explicitly said, that's who I'm writing for. And it's so funny because I had readers that were baby boomers who literally wrote me and gave me a hard time. They're like, what about <laughs> us? And I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just really a weird thing. And then the, on the other end, uh, I'll see people talking about further online and they'll say, I'm a millennial, but I still think this is great. And I'm just like, okay, that's good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, you got to think about it. This is a nonprofit in the literal sense in that it does mm -hmm. not make money. It has no business model. It could because I can't help but start anything that doesn't have a business model somewhere in there. Um, anyway, that's a great example of choosing who you're going to serve. And it's really not just all about them. It's the intersection of you and them. And I, I hope our creative and artistic friends are listening to this, that you're not pandering. You're just choosing who you want to make. You're choosing someone whose life you want to make better, whether it be through your art, your writing, uh, you know, whatever it is you do, that's the reality of it. And I think a lot of artistic people, including me, back when I was the young aspiring writer, just feels, you know, you feel like I create and the world worships me. You know, yeah. I'm sorry. I guess that happens <laughs> from time to time. Yeah, it <laughs> but it's luck more than it's God-given genius. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So <laughs> a little strategic consideration for your what your work i mean it's your work it's important you have to treat it as such so this sounds like a good point for you to set the listener your creative challenge so this is the part of the show if you're new to the podcast where i ask my guest to set you the listener a challenge that is related to the theme of the interview and something that will stretch you creatively in an interesting new direction and which you can do or at least get started on within seven days of listening to this interview. So Brian, what's your creative challenge? Well, okay. So from a marketing standpoint, uh, you'll hear marketers talk about personas or use the term avatar mm -hmm. earlier. Um, and that's just marketing speak for figuring out who you're talking to. And I think a lot of times uh, it's, it's very arm's length. Uh, you know, it's not that you'll necessarily hear some marketing director have a really empathetic and, and deep desire to connect with their target market. That's not how marketers, at, the, at least in the corporate mm -hmm. world, think. But in reality, it's really just who are the people I want to serve? I've always said that entrepreneurs are, can be highly compensated servants 
never think it's about you and you, you won't make the most fundamental mistake. And I, I believe that's true for all creative people. So forget personas and avatars and all that. And uh, we've been given Godin a lot of credit here for 20 years ago. Uh, but even at the beginning of this year, he, he took what I already knew and put it in a way that I just love. And it's about who do you want to be responsible for? Whose life are you responsible for enhancing through your work? And when you think about it that way, that doesn't sound like some awful marketing mm -hmm. thing. That sounds like these are my patrons. These are yeah. the people who I bring value and joy to, and they bring me money so I can live. Um, and, and this is what I've been doing all along. And again, the, the whole entrepreneur servant thing is, has been my mentality forever. But I love the way he put that. You know, it's just so simple. Because it's not just about any yeah. audience. It's who's a group of people that, whether it be out of a sense of purpose, uh, even obligation, I, I don't like obligation, but, you know, wh what's the intersection between who I am, my purpose in life, what I find meaning in, and a group of people out there who I can therefore communicate with, enter commerce <laughs> with. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how our world works. Um, but it's a whole lot more satisfying when you feel like you get up every day with a purpose to take care of an audience, whether it be a thousand people or a hundred thousand, you know, it doesn't matter the number. It, it depends on whether or not it's sustainable to you. And I think also in the long run, emotionally gratifying. And that sounds maybe more artsy than, than some people would expect, but it, it's fundamentally true. And it's no different from how great marketing works at the higher level. Apple did this brilliantly forever until recently, and now <laughs> they're not doing so well at it. Um, but it is possible. And that's why Apple is such the standout case study and the exception, because they took very human characteristics related to design and beauty and autonomy and sticking it to IBM, you know, just all rebelliousness, all these things felt like Steve Jobs was just talking to you directly. Hey, you're my type of person. Let me set you up with the tools you need. Think about that. That's what I'd like everyone to spend a week on and write it out like it's a character in a novel that you may be writing. Oh, that sounds fun. Play. Oh, it, it's, it's a great exercise because once you start yourself going, things will flow out of you. You may not use all of it. You may end up editing later. But who is the type of person that they don't have to be like you? In fact, I think that's a mistake. They don't have to be exactly like you because they're never going to be like you because you're either the expert or the artist or uh, the creative person who is in a position to give them something they can't get elsewhere. So they're not you, and they'll never be you, but they're the people that you feel like 
you want to Great. serve. And if anybody's feeling brave, maybe you could post that as a comment on the show notes, your novelistic description. The show notes will be available at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash Brian. So, Brian, as always, it's been enlightening and mind-boggling to talk to you. We've been on quite the journey today. So for those of us who want to follow your continued adventures, where should they go? Ah, okay. So from, I would suppose from a self-employment standpoint, uh, unemployable is the best resource for that. That's unemployable.com. It's basically a podcast and a newsletter that kind of focuses on this whole idea of constructing a business that gives you the freedom to go fast, slow, big, small, uh, whatever, with the key being that it's up to you. And we talk a lot about how to enhance uh, the creative human being at the center of the business with technology and other uh, kind of strategies that allow one person or a very small team to have kind of an outsized impact. So that is the spot for uh, people who are interested in that. And I think a lot of what we were talking about today um, further touches on the same themes, um, specifically for people in their 40s, early 50s, Gen X, who are, you know, we're coming up on an age where people traditionally were thinking about retirement and that's looking like <laughs> good luck with that. Uh, a dicey proposition. You know, everything from you know the effect of AI and automation on the workforce. You know, if you if you don't get to work up to you're ready to retire, you usually don't have the funds to do it. Uh, then there's the whole unretirement movement, where boomers are basically setting the stage for you know retirement's not all it's cracked up to mm. be, and that's true. We find our our purpose. Um, through what we do, we, you know, the Japanese term, I'll probably mispronounce it. Ikagi. Ikagi. Yeah. I think, yeah. You, you, yeah. Yeah. That's reason to live literally translated. I don't know. So Ikigai, is it? Yeah. I think it's Ikigai, reason to live. Yeah. It's Ikigai. You're right. You're right. Uh, you, you did live in Japan for quite a while. So. <laughs> well, I spent a, few, a bit of time in Japan. My wife is uh, Japanese. So oh, she okay. Has. You didn't actually move there though. Yeah, she'll probably correct. She'll probably correct this when she listens. She says, "Not that at all." <laughs> That's good, and and tell her to correct me. That's all right. Um, okay. Anyway, but uh, yeah, it's uh, this is interesting because that is what's attributed to some of the like longevity of, of certain uh, areas of Japan uh, and other areas of the world where you know people don't go to sit around and or play golf or do nothing because when a lot of times when people do that, especially if they happen to lose their, their spouse or partner, they end up dying shortly thereafter because yeah. there's no reason to keep yeah. going. So the tagline of further is keep going. And it means creatively. It means from a self-actualization standpoint, and it may be pragmatic <laughs> because you need money. And if you, <laughs> if you can't retire, then you better enjoy yeah. what you're doing because it's, you think you're cranky when you're young about doing work you don't want to do. Wait till you're yeah. 65. Yeah. Okay, great. And uh, you know, I would second this. So Unemployable, a great podcast. If you really like the small creative business theme that Brian's been riffing on today, that's 
that's essential listening. And if, like me, you are a Generation Xer, I think you will find plenty to to stimulate and encourage you at further. So thank you, Brian. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. This is great to catch up. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, I do hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful if you could take a couple of seconds to just go to the iTunes podcast app and give the show a rating. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up for the course at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.